Welcome to the milk bar. 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 Welcome along to episode 584 of the milk bar. Jason Forrest here with you as ever. And coming up on the show, we'll be having a chat with Laura Liptrot about her work as a playwright. We'll be hearing from Steve Harley of Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel fame, or about his latest album release, 11 songs, nine of which are covers. It is called Uncovered, and we'll be finding out about the way in which that music came together. We'll have a chat with Dave Lindblad of FFOP Radio, fistful of podcasts. So I have my iPod at the ready to find out what's going on in his world and the current iteration of his show. We'll be having a chat with Chris Commander about his Shakespeare project and how you could get involved. Elise Kay joins us to talk about her latest book, which is very much a self-help edition. And we'll also be having a chat with Tom Webb on a documentary surrounding fertility and the male perspective during the fertility treatment. That's all coming up on this week's show. Podcasting has been around for a number of years now. In fact, myself and my guest, who is with me at the moment on the line from the US, have both had podcasts for more than a decade. Uh, to tell us more about his world, David Lindblad. Good afternoon. Hello. Thank you for having me, Jason. Well, good to have you along. And uh, so, so more of the background, obviously, podcasting at the moment has been really heavily sought after uh, with the, the lockdown situation, both in the UK and the US, where we find you. Mm-hmm. And a, a number of celebrities have suddenly started doing podcasts because they realise they can get yeah. attention that way when they're not on TV or radio. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's something which, is, which has been ongoing for, say, since the iPod was born a, a, a number of decades ago now, which is scary. Because that is now yeah. as old as the cassette tape was when I was young. <laughs> yeah. Fistful of Podcasts is your thing. You've been uh, working on this sort of kind of on and off, but you are now back. So uh, what prompted you to get back into uh, regular streaming and uh, yeah, sharing of your content? That's the thing, man. It's the lockdown. Like what happened was, you know, we, we started Fistful of Podcasts back in 2009. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, did it for 10 years. I was... Um, you know, getting iffy about it as my son got closer being born. So I decided, you know, let's let's call it quits for a little while. Uh, I, you know, I it would be hard to keep up everything plus a new family. So we did that, and you know, he my son is now big enough where he's not uh, like a constant suck of my uh, attention. So I, you know. That's the thing. Like, you know, everything got shut down. Things went crazy. I think people need to reach out and connect, uh, you know, more than ever. So I thought, you know what? Let's let's fire up the old band and, and get the show back going again. <laughs> yeah, because uh, po- podcasting. So back in two thousand and nine, and we know each other because we were on the same platform uh, yeah. using Podbean. I know you've gone to another provider now for your current stuff, but equally. Uh, for me, my podcast, The Milk Bar, is all over the place as well. I'm now on TuneIn, Spotify. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got a SoundCloud feed of some of the interviews. Uh, the video version of the podcast goes out on Facebook, occasionally on YouTube. And as well as that, it is downloadable from the iTunes Store and a number of other podcast providers. So suddenly, we are all over the place. Whereas back in the day, I, I have my original, well, my, my last iPod, not my original iPod, because my original iPod was one of the, uh, uh, it was actually, I think an iPod Touch was the first one I had, but this is convenient, uh-huh. my, uh, the, the, the smaller version of the, uh, the, uh, the thing. But 
getting around to downloading stuff onto it these days isn't necessarily necessary because we mostly stream. Whereas back in the day, you used to select your favorite podcasts, download them, and stick them on a device you carried everywhere with you. Yeah, I, I still do that. Like, I have, uh, I had to, look, well, this is how deep into it I was. Like, I had so much material and so much content. I actually bought two iPods. So I kept one that had just podcasts on it and one that had the, all of my music on it. And I still use the podcast one. I carry it around in my bag because what if the internet goes down and I can't stream, you know? This is it. And you, know, you might be in the middle of nowhere. Who knows what's going to happen in the current Ooh. world? Everything could suddenly switch itself off. Uh, but mm. uh, whilst electromagnetic fields still work as far as your iPod goes, you're going to be quite happy. Uh, but, yep. but I mean, how have you found it from from a listener's point of view? Because you say you, you're somebody who loves your your podcasts. Uh, I I do too. Uh, I, I I love speech radio as well. If I'm uh, away from uh, my my usual sources of entertainment, so uh, mm. you know it it is a very intimate medium sometimes. And uh, with with Fistful Podcasts, I mean, you guys are a bit sweary. I know that because I made I made you not swear as much on episodes that I've been on. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, it's, even so. It, it's a, it's a way of expressing without censorship or, or, or editorial control. And I think that's a, a part of the draw, isn't it? Yeah, I think for me anyway, like I always equate podcasting to like talk radio. And, and I was, you know, a huge fan of talk radio back in the day when we still had that here terrestrially uh, because it was described to me as a warm medium, whereas like television and all, those other types of media are cold. It takes a while to get feedback, but with a podcast, and I'm seeing this even less so with like live streams, with a podcast, you know, you're right there in the person's ear. You get to be in that person's head and, and develop a relationship, whether it's one, you know, it usually starts out one-sided, obviously, because they're the listener, but, you know, they end up, if they like you, reaching out to you, and, and so it, it sort of fosters this community that I don't think a lot of other media types have simply because... Like when you're listening to a podcast, you're carrying someone around in your head for an hour, two hours, however long it is. Whereas if, like, if you're watching a YouTube video, you just like click and you're on to the next thing, you know, and they're sort of small and sort of digestible. So I think podcasts are a fun way to be like, you know, here's a way to get to know me uh, and you got all the time in the world to do it and I'll be in your ear and you can reach out whenever you want. I think that's what's compelling about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and through things like the Facebook page, you can drop in and say hi and yep. I get that, you get that, I know. Um, but I mean, equally, so you, you're doing more video stuff now. You've always had some content that, that sort of runs alongside the, the podcast. Uh, mm. I, obviously, most of the interviews I do and have done for the, about the last five years, I've videoed as well as recorded. So there's the, the audio version for someone sat on a bus who doesn't want to be stirring screen uh, but there's, uh, there's also you know the, the the fact that I mean for 18 months uh, on one of the community TV channels in the in the Midlands uh, they were running my interviews and plugging the podcast for me which is quite cool wow. so you know it, that was cool and, and but you I mean you get to you, you do that through through what you're doing at the moment and uh, now with Fistful Podcasts you're running streams all over YouTube uh, as well as having audio content to download that is true that's that's the thing when I when I jump back into it I said you know I'm gonna do it whole hog I'm not gonna come back and do it like yeah you know because a lot of people I, I didn't want to do one of those things where somebody leaves and then comes back and does it half-heartedly and then it dies twice as quick when I came back I said you know I'm gonna try everything I used to do and also try something new so I got my camera set up here. I got, you know, all my junk and my collection. Mm -hmm. So when when people are coming to me now, you know, now more than ever, especially like if if you like someone, I don't see a reason not to give it to them. Like I'm I'm gonna be here doing it anyway, so you can come and, and enjoy it or or you know whatever. I'll always be here. 
But the more options you have, I think the, the, the better it is and the larger net you can cast. Because the YouTube community, I think the podcast community are like a little bit different. <laughs> so if I can snag them both or like cross promote either or, you know, I'm, I'm like totally on board because either way, uh, I get to talk into a microphone and at least one other person will listen to me because usually my wife is in the room. <laughs> so that, that works. But so it, it's all down to merchandising and all sorts of these days as well, funding streams. Because obviously you don't get paid for a podcast unless you get a sponsor in. That's something that's dipped in and out on my show in the past. Uh, I, I know that you've done, done merch. I mean, you, you actually have behind you. I've got mine here. I've got a milk bar mug and you've got one behind you as well. Uh, so uh, that, 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 that's some of my merch. If you do want to buy one of those, please let me know. We'll get in touch. But um, it, it, it does sort of expand that way, doesn't it? And I think that's something that, uh, that you've also been uh, aware of in the past. Yeah, we've done, we've done shirts and we've done you know, magnets and, and notebooks and stuff. I've even got some like, stuff down here. Like This was from the first run of the show. It's just a notepad. Like, every time I send something out from the studio, I do a little handwritten note on one of these guys to show, like, hey, you know, it's, it's actually coming from here. Like, but that's the great thing about DIY, about podcasting, is when you reach out, you're talking to the person, typically. You're not reaching some handler or some third party. You know, That's another great thing about podcasts. You reach out. You're talking to the man, the myth, the whoever. Whoever's in charge, <laughs> yeah. I guarantee you're getting them. That's the way it works. And I mean, obviously, you know, the, the climate over in the U.S., I think, is, is, is even more interesting than the one in the U.K. at the moment. Obviously, we've all been suffering due to, to lockdown. Uh, I mm. know that there's a lot of people uh, whose you know, livelihoods and incomes have been put on hold over yep. here in the U.K. And I think U.S. Is, is probably the same, if not slightly worse. And uh, without the likes of uh, our NHS, which uh, takes away the worry of getting medical care, uh, I think the U.S. is in a rather more difficult position with your elections on the mm. way, I should think. That gives you food for thought when it comes down to any podcast, but you don't want to end up on the wrong side. It must be a difficult one to balance that politically. I yeah, it, that's the, my my biggest issue with podcasting from day one is I wanted our shows to be evergreen, so I tried to touch upon topics and like topical issues as little as possible mm -hmm. because nothing will date your content faster than referencing something that's a big deal but no one will know about or whatever or you know whatever whatever the divisive issue is what i want is for in the future whoever show up shows up to the show can pick any episode at random and be like this is funny i don't you know you don't have to be embroiled in any political garbage that's happening or or has happened i just want you to be able to pick up push play and enjoy and not be like another one of these or like we've already gone over this or whatever <laughs> So it, it is it is hard though to to stay away from that sort of stuff. But in the end, nobody really wants to hear it because it, it, whatever. No, you yeah, know, they come here to laugh. They want to escape from it, if, if anything, and that, that's that's part of your job, isn't it? And uh, you mm -hmm. get to, to take them away from that. But I mean, I mean, you've done some some slightly topical stuff for the paleontologists out there at the moment on the grounds that uh, recent episodes have included dinosaur talk. Now, I can understand <laughs> me ending up in the world of having a chat about dinosaurs because I'm doing current affairs things, exhibitions, or whatever else is normally going on. But um, I would never have thought you were going to cover archaeology. You know, that was one of the things that I wanted to do, too, is I half the reason I came back is to talk to all these people because what, for whatever reason, everybody is has been incredibly um, generous with their time with me. All the paleontologists I've, I've talked to, like musicians, everybody I've reached out to has been amazing. But 
since since paleontology and, di- and dinosaurs have been a passion, um, and, and since the show doesn't really have any structure and or theme, <laughs> you can get away with it. Yeah, I get to cherry pick anything I want because I I never said that this was not going to be a show about dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, good fun for the last what, eleven years. Uh, it's been a bit on and off. I, you know, I've been a bit disappointed that I haven't missed up there all the time. But you're back into the swing of things now. Where do we find you? And uh, I, I've parental advisory, explicit content at times. Uh, yeah, however, the- um, what, what what do we do to to get hold of the magic that is Fistful of Podcasts? So uh, here's a, here's a quick funny story. We are you know an explicit sort of you know raunchier show, and our our website used to be fistfulpodcasts.com, but when, uh, you know, I called it quits, I said, you know, we're turning it in. Uh, I let the, the name lapse, and it was immediately, I don't know if you heard the show, it was immediately snatched up by a purveyor of lurid material. <laughs> and I, I for, for what reason, I do not know, because the, our fistfulpodcast.com doesn't seem like a place you'd go to get swanky stuff like that, but whatever. But don't, so don't so, go there. That's that's the thing. Don't go to fistfulpodcast.com. Yeah, that. They bought that immediately. I can't believe how fast they snatched it up. But now we're at ffopradio.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're at FFOP Radio on Twitter. You can catch, catch us on the Facebook. I'm, I'm always active there. Like I sometimes feel I do too much on Facebook because I go through this vicious cycle of, you know, I wake up, I think, oh, man, this is the last day I can create content. My mind is totally empty. Then I drink a pot of coffee, and I explode all over the Internet. <laughs> So I'm sure I'm sure everybody's sick of this cycle. I'm trying to keep it as uh, as, as normal as I can. <laughs> so ffopradio.com, Facebook, Twitter, all the usual outlets, and uh, basically you will be finding the madness that comes from the mind of this man and the rest of the team. Shout out to the current team, please. Oh gosh, so so the current team. So so the the core group is is me, Adam, and Andy. We are the OG Fistful Podcast, <laughs> but. Coming back, um, I'm going to try and inter- integrate a lot more people. So, but but, but all the, the core dudes will be there. Me, Adam, and Andy will always be, you know, what FFOP was and is. And it will uh, expand from that. I'm hoping that maybe you'll let me get involved again because it was quite good fun uh, back in the day. <laughs> I rather enjoyed myself when we were uh, having a bit of a giggle. Probably the best part of a decade ago, which is the scary bit now. But, uh, but for now, David Lindblad, thank you for joining us. Hey, I, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. With the album uncovered this year and a range of songs for us to enjoy, Steve Harley has been working hard throughout the whole of 2020 with a brand new single out on the 18th of September. He's here now to tell me more about it. Hello, sir. Yeah, good afternoon. Hello. Hi. First of all, obviously, uh, with your extensive career, shall we say, uh, there's there's plenty in the back catalogue. And, and coming up with something new and different, uh, it must always be not only uh, a, a challenge in some ways, but a pleasure in many others with the work that you like to do. And and this album has, has, must have been an absolute treat to put together. Yeah, it was a wonderful time. Yeah, the best ever. We, we took um, a couple of weeks at Rockfield, which is... A residential studio down in on the Welsh border. Mm-hmm. It's 
it's beautiful countryside to wake up to and uh, lovely top-of-the-range recording studio, of course it is. And I had some great players with me, a couple of guys I'd never met before whose work I knew really well, but I'd never met them. So it was all a bit of an eye-opener. And uh, it, also it was weird to be with relative strangers and making the bacon and eggs in the morning. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so had you not done the Lockfield experience before? That was new to you. Yeah, I'd done a few nights at a, at a place in Norfolk about 10 years ago with the guys, but um, this was quite different, yeah. But they're lovely people, and they're all of a certain age, you know, they're not, they're not kids, and you do find in probably all walks of life, but I only know this one walk of life, don't I, really? Um, 47 years of it, and you do find that the guys who are constantly busy and are top players, um real professionals, you you will find that they're always really, really decent people. You don't get prima donnas and arrogance. You don't see much of that. They tend not to get the the, the, uh, the offers, so they, they fall by the wayside. <laughs> so it was, it was fun with like-minded, as people say these days. Like-minded people. It was a terrific time. Uh, but, but somewhere like that venue has got equipment which has in itself stemmed the whole of your career, whether it be the tape machine or the, of, of back in the day or the, or the digital equipment that you're more used to using these days. But when you're stripping something back and doing more uh, acoustic numbers and, uh, and that sort of, uh, of sound you want to get across, it's getting the, the, the realness of it without it sounding over-processed, which is probably well, is just as important. You're quite right. We, we did all of this album was recorded on Pro Tools. It's all digital. Interestingly, the album has absolutely no EQ. You're talking, <laughs> a, you're talking about studios and equipment. Well, Rockfield's got everything. And, but I didn't use any of it. It, it, it I, don't, I wanted it. I said to my engineer Matt Butler, I said, Matt, I just, I want when I get to sing these after we've recorded the backing tracks. When I sing these songs, I've got to. I want to be in their living room. It's an acoustic album, an acoustic band. I don't want it to sound electronic. I don't want. So there's no electric instruments on it. Not even a keyboard. It's all strings. Apart from some light drum kit, double bass, guitars, violin, viola, and a string quartet, and some gospel singers. <laughs> it's, it's about as organic as a, a, a recording can get. Um, there's no EQ, no equalization, no twiddling of knobs. Basically, I said to my engineer, "Look, we're in the best. We've got the best equipment, the Pro Tools that money can buy. We've got the best microphones, including some ancient." What vintage stuff that he brought himself that he owns, and we've got the best musicians money can buy. We've got um, we all turned up with the best equipment that money can buy. You know, we all turn up with uh, handmade guitars, vintage violins, and double bass. You know what I mean? It's, it's <laughs> wonderful equipment. We're professionals. You know, so it's all great, great stuff. And I just said to him, I've got to play this. We don't even know each other, but I've got to make this sound like a band that's been together forever. And it does sound like that. That's how good they are. And then I said, like I was saying to you, I want it to be like I'm in their living room. The voice has to be. So what we did was I sang them all, the 11 titles, and up close to the microphone, you can actually hear all the all the P's and Q's and ticks and not all the little ticks and D's and B's and pops. In my voice, you can hear them all on this album. They're not, uh, they don't irritate you. They won't irritate anybody, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but you can hear the humanity 
in my voice and all the human elements in in the voice box and in my throat and that meant the world to me it's it's honest um and um you normally employ an engineer at this level to to take all that stuff out you know they spend hours getting rid of all these irritating well they're not they're not irritating all these little uh, noises and i just said that's the that's the humanity of it leave them there and so there it is. And luckily, listeners seem to be enjoying that. It's choosing the songs as well. I mean, the energy that you've brought to, to this in its own way must have been the same as when we were looking back to you know, Cockney Rebel days uh, and, and what the 70s and, and, and everything that this, that this happened musically from there. Well, I've had long periods when I didn't release much, but... Um... That's as you get older, it just gets more difficult, obviously. If young, you know, all, in all art forms, you tend to be at your peak when you're young and uh, fairly angry with life and whatever. <laughs> uh, but when you get older and a bit more set, settled down, mellowed, you know, it's, it's harder. But these songs on this album, two of them are mine, um, and uh, nine of them are other people's. But they're songs that I've... I totally admire, you know, anyone who, uh, I don't know, I've published about 150 songs, but anyone who does that is a songwriter by trade. It, when you sing someone else's song, when you make your own interpretation of another song, it, it's always going to be the main criterion is likely to be, do I wish I'd written that? And in, in nine cases here, the answer is, uh, definite. Yes. <laughs> well, with, yeah. Without of time, though, this is the single which is out on the eighteenth uh, of September. Uh, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. You can't yeah. really argue with the, the fine quality of their songwriting. But you've, you, with all of these, you'll have somebody else's take on them that you will have heard. You will know. Your audience will know. So, what what is it, and how do you deconstruct that before you put this together in the the version that you have here? You know. All of these songs I've been singing for forever at home. I play a lot of guitar at home, a lot, you know, even on, during this terrible few months of lockdown, whatever. I haven't stopped playing because I, I want to know I'm match, match fit. You never know when the, you're going to play again, so you've got to stay match fit. You know, I haven't put an ounce of weight on, thank heavens. And <laughs> my fingers are still, you know, guitar players' fingers. They're, they're, they're calloused and hard and because I play all the time, and um, these are songs that I sing. You don't sing your own songs much at home when you're practicing because you know them. You know, I know my own songs pretty well. <laughs> um, so uh, they're songs that I tended to sing uh, uh, around the house, and um, when we went in the studio, I already knew the tempo, the rhythm, the atmosphere, the, the attitude that I was going to record them in, and that's what I had to convey to these the musicians. And uh, as I say earlier, but being so talented and bright, you know, they didn't have a problem with that. Interestingly, we were a bit of a mixed breed. I mean, the lead guitar playing is Martin Simpson, and Martin is very much from the roots world of Yorkshire, a top player, but very folk and roots music, not mainstream like I tended to be. Uh, the two in the rhythm section, Ollie and Tom on drums and double bass, they're from the jazz world. And, you know, some of these songs, you, they're familiar to you maybe, and maybe to my list, my audience maybe, but 
the musicians, not one of those musicians knew all of those titles. There were always two or three out of that list that each one of them would not have recognised, that they'd never heard before. Mm -hmm. Well, even to the point of one of your own songs, you added an extra verse, so it's, it's going to be different, whatever happens. We've compared with you. Yeah, I wrote... Well, yeah, I mean, it's from 1976 originally, but I don't know what happened back then. I was, I was very, very... Um, I wrote songs every day in those days. But I only wrote two verses, and for all those years, when we've sung it live, I've done what's on the record, which is repeat the first verse as a third verse after a bridge. Well, that's a bit sort of lazy. <laughs> I, I didn't understand what happened to me in 1976. I was a young man. You know, I could write... Why I chose not to and to repeat the verse one is... A mystery even to me. So finally, Matt Butler, the engineer, who's a fan and my friend, he said um, he wanted me to record the song again to, with these players. Uh, before we went in the studio, we discussed what we were going to do. And, and I said to him, do you know what? If I do, I'll have to write that third verse. <laughs> and he held me to it. Daily, he would say, how are you getting on with that third verse? <laughs> <laughs> oh, when I'm ready, when I'm ready in my own time, thank you. You know, and uh, one morning, um, my dad passed away. He was in a uh, care home and very unwell for a long time. And he not passed away, he passed away earlier. But one morning at Rockfield, we knew that his um, private cremation was going on hundreds of miles away. And none of us wanted to be there, all his family. It was totally, uh, it, we, we did a bowie. And because he wasn't a religious man. And um, I sat out in the sun at 8.30 in the morning in July last year in the, looking at horses in a field. And the dad was being taken at that very moment. I knew what was happening 150, 300 miles away. And I just popped into breakfast and said to Matt, I've written the verse. Uh, you know, just you, you, you have to wait for the muse to sit on your shoulder. You can't beat yourself up to get words and lyrics out, you know. You have to wait for the moment. He kept asking me every day, and I'd say, look, in my own time, you know, you, you just have to relax believing it, it will come eventually in time. I've often, through my career, I've stood at the microphone. Uh, through all of those big albums I, uh, at Abbey Road and places, I'd walk in to sing the song, and no one knew that I'd only got, like, half of it written. <laughs> no, honestly, I'd go in and just set the confidence of youth. I would, or of a young, young manhood, I'd stand at the microphone and say, hold on a sec. And two minutes later, I'd say, OK, let's go again. And I'd have three more lines written. And <laughs> I used to put them together like that quite often. It's all in the edits. Just, yeah, in, in, in the end, it'll come to you if you are born to do it, you know, if you've, if you've got it inside you anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, there's somebody whose voice I absolutely adore, alongside yours, Eddie Reader makes an appearance on this album, and oh. when it came down to the, the, the wonders of Fairground Attraction, her solo work, uh, that kind of made that era for me. I mean, a, a good decade after uh, your, your initial appearance on the, uh, the music scene, but these people, they, they appear, and you just cannot believe the way they sound, and it must have been a joy working with her. She's a wonderful woman. Um, she's an idol of mine. I've been a huge fan for, for many, many years, and we went to see her live with an acoustic band 
in Stanford, Lincolnshire, a year before, two years ago. And we agreed to say hello backstage at the end of the show, and I didn't know what she'd make of me. She's a Scottish folk singer. And I didn't know what she'd make of me, but she wanted to say hello. That was kind. And we went backstage, and she came out bouncing and all over me and told me that the Psychomodo was the first album she bought. And that was my second album, mm-hmm. Connie Rebel. And that, that's, that was gratifying, to, you know, to use that, you know, at least. It really, really meant the world to me. <clears throat> and then we started chatting, and I told her about the song <clears throat> that I was going in to record. Star of Belle Isle. It's a song from, uh, it's a traditional folk song from Newfoundland, Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew there were two lost verses. <clears throat> uh, you, 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 you can't find these verses anywhere. And I found them, well, I did find them eventually. I knew from the folk world that these two verses existed, but no one else had ever, ever sung them, or at least one man did, Archie Fisher. Yeah. An, an old Scottish folk singer. And Archie Fisher had sung, and I found a, a, a privately made YouTube film by lots of research, and and I just kept stopping the vid, vid and writing down the words. <laughs> uh, and I got the last two verses and, and wanted Eddie in to do it as a duet. And she, we went up to Glasgow to record them with her. She was phenomenal. It's just a great artist and the nicest person. But as I said earlier about musicians... If you survive at a, at a professional, respectable level, uh, if you have longevity, then you are going to be a decent person. You don't meet you don't meet uh, people that are difficult to get along with. It. You don't meet them if they're if they're over over forty, over forty five, and been in the business all their lives. You know they learn humility. <laughs> but I mean Eddie's voice as well. Um, you talked about the uh, the way in which you have been recorded uh, for this. I think she's got that sort of sharpness as well, I mean, and particularly for Eddie as well. I mean, her initial work I bought on CD as a teenager when it first came out because CD gave us the clarity that we were missing off the, the muddy sound of a cassette tape. Vinyl's got its own warmth and magic, but CD yeah. gave you something else which uh, the whole digital recording world uh, has, has made so clear. There isn't anything that goes away as part of the, 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 the process which puts it on the recording. It, as but long we, as you've got a WAV file, yeah. not an MP3, you've got the, the, the studio sound there. Yeah, I recorded Eddie um, with, also with no EQ. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no echo on her voice. There's only what echo we, are, we could pick up in the live room, the studio. Mm-hmm. We put her in the biggest room that they had at the studio in Glasgow. And... Uh, just let it flow. Um, we mixed it down in um, uh, in Cheltenham studio in Cheltenham, um, and didn't think about it. We we we, we uh, you've you've brought it up. I've never thought about it until this second, to be honest. But we didn't uh, treat her voice with anything. It's utterly natural, and we mixed it, made the album, sent it to her said, hey, here you are, and thanks again. And she loves it. She didn't say, oh, that's interesting, Steve. You've mixed me without any echo or any EQ or anything. <laughs> she didn't say anything. She just said, oh, it's lovely. Love it. Thank you. You know, that's it. End of story. We don't discuss it. 
This is an album which kind of cries out to be performed live, but that hasn't been the opportunity to do that oh. as normal so far. So, so how, how do you see this evolving and, and, and taking on a, a presence in the real world? Oh, we've done it. Um, yeah, it's a terrible, terrible year. It's just dreadful. I mean, I've lost about 60 shows, um, which means all the musicians and the crew and all the theatres that we would have hired, they're all missing those 60 shows. The theatres are missing hundreds. It's heartbreaking. Of course it is. It's bloody, they're at home doing nothing, earning nothing. It's mm -hmm. dreadful. But we played nine, the four-piece acoustic band. We played four, nine shows in February and March before the lockdown. And oh, it's so sad. I mean, we were on fire. We were on fire. We, we, it was just wonderful. We, they're a great, great band, great players. And I, I give them a lot of space for improvisation. And they liked that. And uh, we, 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 were, we were on fire, to be honest. Uh, we did the whole album, except one track, I think. We did 10 out of 11. But that's only 10 songs. Uh, you know, the show is two and a half hours long most nights, two and a quarter maybe. <laughs> so there's another 10 or 11 from my back catalogue that come out. And uh, it's quite a mixture. I didn't play it as I'm now going to present a new album. That's a kiss of death. I slip them in bit by bit, you know. It's because of the familiarity of the songs as well, though, and, and the fact that I mean, you, you've sung these so often around the house. You know, this they're going to feel a natural part of any set that you produce, however it works. Well, luckily, the the buyers are, are many thousands have sold already, and there are lots of comments on our Facebook and whatever uh, all over the internet. Um, most of them are saying that they thought that it was mine, you know? You set a high bar when you say to your engineer, I've got to make it sound like I'm in their living room, but also as though I've written the song. You know, you've got to perform it as though it's yours. Rod Stewart has covered my song, A Friend for Life, on his last but one album, and he's such a great soul singer that when you hear it, you think Rod's written it, because he sings it like like Sam Cooke and Otis, he sings it as if he owns it. Mm -hmm. That's soul singing. And I've tried to do that with these nine titles that are not mine. I've got to make it sound like a listener hears it and thinks, that's can Steve, Steve, Steve's written this great <laughs> song. <laughs> Taking the credit for the work of others, but producing so much of your own stuff of the same standard that no one is going to question it. Uh, so the album <laughs> is uncovered. And it's a, an, an oral treat for your fan base and beyond. If you haven't visited Steve's work in the recent uh, years, this is well worth getting into your uh, into your CD player, MP3 player, however you want to, to, to sit back and listen to this. It's on vinyl, Jason. And vinyl as well. Lots of vinyl has been selling. People are getting decks again and playing vinyl. It's wonderful to know. And and, and, and again, that, that's it's the start of, of, of things back what, with, with Cockney Rebel. It would have been vinyl, maybe the Only. occasional cassette. Yeah, but, uh, you yeah. know... That, that was it. it was, home taping was killing music back then. You know, it was, it was yeah. vinyl you wanted to buy. Yeah, until the dreadful cassette was invented. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that, that, those were not good days. However, the music lives on. These songs bring uh, a, a true moment of, uh, of magic to your stereo, whether it's your hi-fi turntable or whether it's coming through a streaming service on your phone. Out of Time is the single. 18th of September is the release date for that one. And uh, again, this is just music to, to adore. And, and the fact you're sharing it in, in, in such a, an intimate, real way 
uh, through the way it's been recorded sounds like uh, you know for, for, for those people who, who come to these songs for the first time they're, they're truly going to believe that you're at the heart of them as you are at the heart of all the music that you produce Steve well, thank you wonderful to speak to you thank you for no, joining my pleasure, us my friend thank you very much it's been, been a joy thank you again thank you Usually when I talk to Laura Liptrot, it's ahead of a massive event which is coming up. Uh, let's find out what's going on in her world at the moment. Hello, Laura, how are you doing? Hi, hi, Jason, I'm good, thanks. So, so what is happening? Because uh, we've talked to you about uh, various one-woman shows, uh, a romp through history. Uh, what's going on at the moment? Um, well, very little at the moment, but I'm sort of focusing on writing at the moment, sort of write plays about what's going on at the moment, um, yeah, uh, that's kind of it, really. I mean, I'm, I've just started a business called Chameleon Drama, um, <clears throat> which is aiming at teaching adults drama techniques, mm -hmm. which I started in March. Um, so, obviously, just before I could start any teaching, all this happened. So, I've been doing a lot of planning for that, trying to, you know, refine exactly what I'm going to do. So, yeah, it's all sort of just planning at the moment. Yeah, because I mean, you've, you've worked with the rest of the family on a number of different events over the years, and I know everything again has been put on hold uh, with the, the groups that your dad is working on too. So it must have been a weird time. What's it been like seeing more of the family in a natural context rather than one where you're all on stage together? Uh, that's been a bit weird. Um, that, that's a lot of material for plays as well. <laughs> it's been really nice in a way because. Um, Last year, for example, I was I was in three different shows at this time of year, so I hardly ever got to see my mom, who's not really involved in the acting. So I hardly got to see her last year, which um, I've been able to see her a lot more this year. So, so it's been nice. It's been time to sort of reflect and spend time with family and friends, albeit via messenger and social messaging and all that lot. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's been nice. We've been able to relax and enjoy each other's company outside of a script, which is good. <laughs> and, and when it has uh, been down to the writing that you're doing and, and exploring the uh, what very often feels like a social experiment that we're, we're in just at the moment, I mean, how, is, how has that shaped what you've been doing and, and how do you think that will translate to a time post-COVID-19? Well, what I've mainly been doing with the writing is I've been texting my friends a lot and I thought it was really interesting that the texts contain the usual silliness between friends but also we've talked about events like uh, their opinions of the clapping, the NHS clapping um, the, the different measures that have been brought in, um, the, the wearing face masks in shops. Within those text messages, there is a human reaction to this big public thing, and I think that's that's really interesting. So I've saved all those messages, and that's something I'm going to translate into a play, whether it's two people on stage reading as if texting each other, or I um, uh, dramatise them in some way. But yeah, it, 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 it's because you've got all these cataclysmic events, and then you've got you've got the human reaction to it. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are annoyed by this or concerned by that, what people are really feeling, and, and that's what I'm intending to put on stage. And I think this time as well, you can write a play around this, and it's something which affects everybody. Normally, when you're writing a play, you're trying to get others to identify with a character who's having an experience you may not have had. This is a wholly shared experience across the whole of humanity, across the globe. Whatever country you're in, whatever they're admitting to their level of exposure to this is, this is affecting everyone. Yeah, it definitely is. It's, we've had events that affect people throughout the country, uh, Brexit, for example, 
Um, but then we haven't had, in my lifetime, anything that is completely worldwide. I mean, this is the equivalent of writing a play about the Second World War. You know, it's just such an iconic thing that everybody's got their story, everybody's involved in it. So, yeah, it, it is a really weirdly interesting time to write about. And yeah. uh, from your personal point of view... Uh, and and your age group, um, it, it's it's affected each band of, of of ages differently. How do you think it's uh, affected those in in your social circle in, in in different ways to others? I don't know really. Um, I don't feel like it's affected us very much because um, me and my other friend talk about this. We're, we're very much of the age of sort of between technology and interaction because I was born in 1993, so I'm sort of a little bit computer literate, a little bit. <laughs> The internet's been um, there for all of your life, though. Yeah, that, that's it. So, but I've also got... I think we were sort of the last generation to play out in the streets and on the fields and stuff, so we're sort of this sort of between generation. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, we're suffering with the social distancing, uh, but on the other hand, we are also able to use technology to stay in contact. So it's, it's, it's just very strange, and we're able to sort of stand on the outside where, you know kids are going through not being able to interact with each other, um, the problems with exams, um, and then we're also able to see the other side where older generations are perhaps more nervous about contacting each other. They're, they may be more appreciative of the social distancing measures mm -hmm. because they're, they're more affected by, by, by COVID. Yeah, there's a, the, so, the, the risk element comes into everything we, we look at and, and how, we, how we deal with it. Uh, and, yeah. and, from from this for you, what's the other side? I mean, are, are you starting now to see uh, green shoots of things happening? Are you, uh, have you got events which could be taking place in some way or form? Um, yeah, I mean, it's all a bit up in the air at the moment because nobody really knows whether we're going to go back into lockdown or, or anything. So plans are all sort of in the air. But I am talking to uh, other directors and, and getting ready for projects. We're sort of acting as if, as if lockdown's not going to happen again, but we're not, we're sort of in limbo yeah. at the moment. Kind, kind so of having to, having to work out what is coming next uh, and, yeah. and, and second guess it, but, but without the sort of efforts that go into creating something soon, I, you know, we, we need that creativity. As a species, we need the interaction. So, you know, this, this is going to be uh, uh, time to tell some stories and hopefully get everyone back a bit more yeah, normal. Yeah, definitely. Everybody has got their story to tell in relation to this and I think that is really important that's a, a really good focus it's really helped me personally being able to spend all this time writing if you've got something artistic to focus on but not necessarily if you're just a writer you know you can create canvases that are about this or pieces of music it, it's it's a it's a, a worldwide story but everybody's got their own story to tell and everybody is going to want to hear somebody else's point of view when we are able to go out into theatres or concert arenas or whatever yeah. And where can we monitor what you're thinking? Uh, you've got a, a space online. Are you sharing anything at the moment? Uh, it's mainly Facebook. Um, just putting updates on Facebook. I'm not terribly technically minded, but <laughs> Facebook and some videos on YouTube. I've up uploaded a couple of um, couple of, sort of tutorial videos, just two minutes sort of things, helping people. So um, we can find those. Are searching for Laura L. Liptrot on there? Yeah, Laura Liptrot or Chameleon Drama. So those are the two things that we need to keep an eye out for. 
and yeah. uh, you will start to see what's happening and uh, through the work that you're doing and just like again the, the other projects that it's, uh, uh, are in the family no doubt we'll be talking about those in the not too distant future and fingers yeah. crossed it won't be too far away before we're seeing things back on stage yes yes hopefully hopefully but Laura, always good to talk to you and uh, we're looking forward to, to more of your work in the near future brilliant thank you bye It's unusual we'll talk to somebody quite as soon as we've got Christopher Commander back, but there's that much going on in his world, and the fact that I barely got a word in edgeways last time means we need to talk to him again. Here he is for a bit of a natter. Hello. Hello. <laughs> now, last time we were talking about your Shakespeare project, all the great stuff you've been normally get up to in the US and the fact that that's gone online. And uh, you are a fan of Shakespeare, as we well know, but also you do magic. Now, where are we going this time? Because it's got to be led by you, because however, however I try to, to force it down any path, you will decide where we're going anyway. <laughs> um, well, uh, I'll, I'll, take you through, I'll take you through one of the big projects which has come out of uh, all the lockdown stuff. Yeah. Um, once guidelines sort of changed and uh, performances were allowed outdoors, uh, me and a group of creatives, we sort of just um, have been, you know, gnawing at the bit to try and do something. So, me and a director, we we I cut a, a script. Uh, we got together um, and figured out a couple people we might want along on the journey. Uh, and basically, it's a it's a Hamlet project, but it's outside. So it's called Hamlet Out Outdoors. Um, it's not. <laughs> restricted to uh, outdoors, but um, with the given circumstances, we don't want to stand on ceremony before we do something. So it's very much still in the uh, creative process. Uh, it's got um, it's got a, it's got a real flow to it. It's a really quick Hamlet. It's about an hour and a quarter. Yeah, because that, that must have taken quite a lot of work because we're talking a three to four hour masterpiece normally here. So uh, mm. number one, how could you feel able to do something like that to the Bard's work? And uh, how has it worked? It's come out well, I trust. That's a, that's a very good question because I've had uh, one of the creators we brought along first just to chat through the process. Um, he was of the, the, the mindset of going, well, maybe we should make it more acceptable to uh, a modern audience and change some uh, and change some words around. Um, and I immediately <laughs> stamped my foot down and uh, we had a bit of a tiff. Not really. <laughs> uh, we did a little bit just because um, there is something to me that is sacred about that. There's no way that you can improve on Shakespeare. So, um, in, at least in my, in my viewpoint. Um, and also for me, it's not necessarily about understanding every single word. If it's performed well, uh, you will understand the emotional meaning behind those words. So, um, but then the counter argument of that is, but I've cut three hours of it. <laughs> uh, how is that not the same? Um, I'm not adding anything to it. I'm taking something away. Uh, I'm not trying to pretend to be something that it's not. But um, are you choosing parts of the narrative and, and, and seeing one side of the story? Or are you being a bit more overall view, but with just a, a lot of the text missing? I'm trying to keep uh, all of the key characters in play. Um, obviously, we all have less lines, but <laughs> um, 
there's a few things that I want to focus on a lot. Well, one, it's in this uh, security state. Denmark is Denmark is a prison, and uh, we deal with the fact that it's very close quarters. And the director and I are trying to figure out, in terms of casting, because it's still open casting, just so you know if anyone wants to contact me and they think they're okay for the project, <laughs> come at me. Uh, it's... It's a, it's a, it's condensed. It's only about eight or nine actors. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some double casting going on, but I really wanted to focus on those close knit relationships. So we want to show more relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia because that's a tough one, especially when you've cut the script. Um, she's not in it a whole bunch, and so I wanted to put her in scenes that she's not usually in to strengthen the relationship between her and her brother, mm -hmm. uh, to show this relationship between her and her father, which is a bit more overbearing in this version of the script. Um, it's very easy for Polonius to come across as this dithering, silly old man um, who's a little bit of a comic relief character. Um, and I really wanted to show uh, the father side and that overbearing father side that he has with Ophelia and the fact that Ophelia really... Um, I mean, the show is all about identity when it comes down to it. Uh, it's about who am I, who are you to me. I mean, the show starts with a question. The show starts with who's there. Um, the, the ultimate knock-knock joke answer. <laughs> uh, but the, the whole show is, is, is a question. There's a question hanging over the whole show. Uh, to be or not to be, it's not just about life or death. It's about who am I, what, what, how, how do I as Hamlet fit into this uh, world that I'm living in. Um, and so we want to we wanna show that, especially with Ophelia, that uh, she doesn't really have, she doesn't know her full identity. She's either a dutiful daughter, maybe forced to be so a dutiful daughter, hint, hint, to how the show's going. Um, and, and where does Hamlet fit into this? He's a, he's a son. Um, he's lost his father. He's basically lost his mother. He doesn't trust his uncle. Um, and there's a, there's a few other things in there that I won't spoil, uh, which, which we're toying with. But um, Ophelia's in it a bit more than she usually is, because I want to strengthen that relationship between her and Hamlet, so the nunnery scene has a bit more weight to it. So is this going to be sort of a, a, a taster to get people onto the, the full Hamlet drug, or is it going to be an entirety in itself, but that will still leave you wanting to explore these characters uh, in, a, in a different way. How do you how do you see it being part of, uh, I don't know, the current Shakespeare narrative, as it were? People should come away from it thinking, because there's no there's no interval. Uh, I wanted this to be a fast-paced, uh, moving, um, not just emotionally moving, but an actual driven piece uh, that will basically sweep you off your feet and then finally plump you back down at the end, and you haven't really known what's this whirlwind that you've just watched. Um, and so hopefully you'll get, you'll get caught up in that. Uh, we're toying with the idea, in terms of the narrative of Shakespeare canon, you should get all of Hamlet. Uh, and that, that was a difficult thing to cut, because how do you get all of a masterpiece in without it feeling shoehorned or missing some really important bits and it not just feeling like a greatest hits of... <laughs> so... Uh, that was part of the, the cutting process of the, of the show. Um, there's some stuff that we've done which I've taken from other productions of Hamlet. Uh, 
I did Hamlet twice, uh, so I'm very familiar with the show uh, and uh, where I would like to go with it and some stuff that I'd like to change. Uh, we have some scenes happening simultaneously uh, in a very sort of cinematic kind of way, um, sort of split-screen kind of stuff happening on stage. Um, but allowing you to, to actually take that story and, and, and show the things that which would be happening concurrently. You're not looking at one thing and then seeing it from another point of view. Actually, you're meshing together those two things so you can see how the timeline would have worked in, in, in reality. Right. I mean, it, we have stuff that happens, as I said, simultaneously in the show because it makes sense. It makes sense narrative-wise to have these two things happen at the same time. Um, in terms of in terms of story, uh, it's trying to show those moments happening at the same time without obviously overlapping lines because no one would be able to hear <laughs> what's going on. Um, so I'm also trying not to give too much away. Uh, <laughs> we want this to almost be an immersive theater experience, obviously with the guidelines in place. But the idea should be that you theoretically could look anywhere in whatever space we're in, and still see some of the story being told. Mm -hmm. um, so it should surround the audience. The idea that Denmark is a prison is also kind of confining the audience as well, in a way. Uh, and, but this is going to be presented in true theatrical style. Um, no screens, but with microphones and things, I trust. Uh, it honestly depends uh, where we do the show. Uh, we have this lovely little grove uh, sort of our eye on this lovely little grove uh, in set, sort of an amphitheater, a, a natural amphitheater uh, in Sutton Park, actually, we've yeah. been rehearsing in. And it's this beautiful little uh, uh, place that we hopefully, with, uh, with permits and whatnot, would love to do it there as well. Um, but it really does depend. I mean, for the most part, it won't be mic'd. Um, we also have to deal with the fact in terms of how do we deal with COVID etiquette? Mm -hmm. because uh, we are aware that the audience is going to be socially distanced. That's just something that should happen. And we don't want this to be an uncomfortable thing for an audience to go to. We want them to be able to be lost in a show rather than always have to worry about their neighbor being too close to them. Um, in terms of us as actors, uh, we've made the decision that we're going to be working so close with each other uh, and so constantly with each other that we as actors won't be socially distant. Um, we toyed with the idea of masks. We toyed with the idea of doing a stylized blocking in terms of we are socially distant and maybe we can work out that. Um, to me, I just felt, well, one, I'm... <laughs> it's hard to say that a, a, a pandemic gets on your nerves, but at the same time, it kind of does in terms of creative process like that, because mm -hmm. we all just want to get on stage and do our stuff. Um, so you're effectively going to create a social bubble that is the Hamlet cast, and with uh, eight through nine of you, that's going to, to, to work relatively easily. Uh, yeah. That gives you a chance to, to explore. You'll be working together closely. You, you, know, you, you will know that you, you're all behaving in such a way as to keep each other safe. And, and out of that kind of mini prison, I suppose you're building this bigger one that is Denmark. So it, it, and it's in its own way, it sort of matches the story. Yeah, we, we also, not only to keep the cast small, because we like the idea that, you know, obviously we don't want to put everyone in danger, <laughs> just a small group of people, uh, that, that we are, 
that that surveillance state that Denmark really is in um, is this close-knit relationship between basically these eight or nine people, mm-hmm. um, apart from all the double casting that's going on. But for the most part, it is a, it's a surveillance state. The audience themselves become basically the court of Denmark. So whenever Claudius is talking, uh, he's talking to them. So the audience should feel included in that uh, very awkward, is this a wedding, is this a funeral kind of situation at the beginning. <laughs> so what is the timeline for this, this taking place? It's still uh, a work in progress. All the ideas are there, the script's there, the, the, the kind of blocking of that in your head is there. Venues are sort of semi there. So what, what can we expect to do and where do we go to, to find out when this is going to take place? So all of those are very good questions, and some of them <laughs> not have answers. Uh, for the most part, this is a project. It's it's transferred from the script phase to the conceptual phase. So we are creating a script that is a basically this, a second version of the script, which is all conceptual based. So we write down, uh, we take the script and we do it scene by scene by scene by scene, and we write down all the emotional uh, moments in it. We write down the colors of those scenes. We write down all the conceptual stuff, uh, and then we have that version of the script that we can then give people, because we know that we, that we can give the, um, we can give our uh, actors, because we know that this is a tough thing to just be thrown in the middle of. Me and the director Stuart were, were calling this our machine, that we are just putting Hamlet in this machine, and hopefully something will grow from that. Um, and some people come in and some people go out. Some people realize that this machine doesn't work for them and maybe we don't work for them or they don't work for us. And that's totally fine. It's this really relaxed. Um, the machine will just keep turning. I will answer your questions, I promise. <laughs> in terms of timeline, uh, we don't really have one. This, that'll that'll this... sort of come out of, of what actually happens. Once, you, once you're getting closer, that'll be when it happens. Okay, so a, a better question for you then. If somebody is listening to this and thinking, that sounds like something I should be part of, what do they do? Because I think you can answer that one. Yes, absolutely. If this is a project that, that uh, you think interests you or excites you or whatever, um, contact me on, on Facebook, Christopher Commander. Uh, we'll have a chat. Basically what will happen is you'll kind of audition for us in a way, but it's a very naturalistic audition. You'll come with us and we'll basically read the script and we'll see if the process that we are creating works for you and that you work for us. We're auditioning for each other, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no, there's no casting set in stone at the moment. Um, and also don't come in, come in with any preconceived notions of who you want to play. Having a good idea in your head is a great idea, and if you want to specifically um, read stuff, but I'm going to make you read stuff. I'm going re- to make you read Marcellus uh, and Horatio and then Gertrude and then all sorts of people. So... Um, it's a very fluid. Uh, it's a very fluid system. So if you if you do feel like this might be something you want to check out and have a have a natter and have a chat with me, um, contact me on Facebook. That's the quickest way. Uh, and hopefully I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. There'll be people out there thinking I want to be part of that, and you'll be spoiled for choices for each <laughs> of the uh, the parts or the dual parts that they end up playing. Now, we, we haven't touched on the world of magic that you do. It's a couple of weeks' time. Shall we have another chat? And this time, uh, I expect someone online magic, okay? 
Ooh, okay. Oh, deal. That is a lovely challenge for me. I like that. Yeah, mini magic show and conversation surrounding the brilliant work that you've done on stage in the past and where that may go in the future. Christopher Commander, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Elise Kay has a brand new book out during September. Joins me now to tell me more about what's going on. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Um, so I've uh, just put together a book called Writing the Wrongs. Uh, it's taken about two years to put together and it started off as a series of therapeutic journals. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's basically, basically my mental health journey, but I don't talk too much about myself. Lots of tips in there for having good self-care, lots of things in there just to help other people out. Mm -hmm. um, it started off as I... I had a mental breakdown a few years ago, mm -hmm. and I um, went through counselling. I saw three counsellors and a clinical hypnotherapist, and every single one of them said to me, are you journaling? Are you writing? And I couldn't even get out of bed, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> trying to journal and write. But I did, and I, I started putting things together, and it evolved from there. Uh, I've done 67 blogs now. Right. Uh, but they're not all about mental health. So some of the things that I I will have rants about, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think I talked about there's 25 different words for brittle semantics in the English language is one of the things that came in there. That's not in the book, but it is one of the blogs I've written. And I think at a later date, I might do a follow-up called Writing the Rights. So there'll be, <laughs> be a more positive side of stuff. Yeah, well, obviously... <laughs> Whenever uh, any of us have concerns about how we feel or how we're reacting to the world around us, and particularly at the moment, it's, it is not an easy time for many people from not only not knowing where they're going to stand financially, but also uh, on top of that, the concerns of, for those around them and their own health, safety. And there's a lot going on in our world, which is very negative. And yet we still live in one of the best times possible. So there is in part a sort of guilt which is put on us for not appreciating what we have in the face of the things which are actually still causing us a problem. And it, it does make it, it very difficult from you know, a personal point of view to, to try and put a, a, a good spin on things sometimes because you then feel the pressure of not being appreciative of what we do have. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there is a whole section about healing in the book. And I talk about hobbies as healing. So I talk about some of the things that I got involved in uh, as part of that because I got sick of being in this cycle of feeling miserable all the time. And everyone around got sick of it. So it, I, only I could kick myself out of that depression. It was circumstantial depression, not clinical. Clinical's entirely different. So it's caused by lots of stress. Uh, so I joined a stand-up comedy group. Mm -hmm. And I did improv comedy. I started boot camp boxing and I talk about all these different things that I did and surrounded myself with lots of positive people and positive things to try and just kick me out of the uh, the, uh, the it was more than doldrums it was it was it was depression but um mm. I, I, it helped uh, you know one of the titles of the blogs is how boot camp saved my life sometimes it can feel like you kind of trying to distract yourself and it, it's not so much a distraction as a way of using your energy for good rather than letting things kind of fester and turn into bad because it, some, some of it is in the mind and it's the mind's way of reacting to truly negative things in your life. But it's stopping 
it ticking over on the negative, but finding that positive the other side. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's almost as I, I felt I needed to do something, and comedy was was one of them because that, that's the easiest solution, really. I've got an acting background. I teach uh, public speaking, so I'm quite comfortable being on the stage anyway. So it was it, it was great for me, uh, and I met loads of really interesting people, really mm. intelligent people uh, with varied backgrounds. Uh, but I mean, but in the world of comedy, um, it, it is known that you will often find people who are troubled by life, and it's through telling others in a comedic way about their life experiences that they get through that. So it's almost like the circuit can be a self-help section uh, to, to, to begin with, and uh, yeah, utilising that as part of your recovery from uh, a bad place, which at least you could see you wanted to get out of, and that that yeah, that sometimes is the most difficult part, isn't it? Yeah, and I think in the book you'd see that. So you see the roller coaster that I went on. So you, you'd go from, oh my God, this days I just can't get out of bed. This is what it feels like. This is the things I've done. And then another day it'll be like, yeah, I've just stood up on stage and improvised being dark. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it's not entirely me. The book's not entirely miserable. There are some sort of happy points in there. And, and I really wanted to do that because I think when you're talking about such a heavy topic, it's not always an, an interesting read. It's not always a um, an easy an easy read, shall we say? Well, it's, it's not always what you want to read. If you're the person who needs the help of the thing that you're reading, you've got to do it in such a way as that somebody can tell you identify with their situation, uh, but and you're not going to give them sort of sort of patronisation and platitudes. You're actually going to talk to them about the reality of it, but still how to get past. Yeah, and I, I, I tend not to do the reason me. This is what I'm doing. There's a little bit of all right. Okay, this is various, but actually, these are the things that, are, or these uh, uh, are things that help me, or these are things that people told me and they worked. Um, try them out. Use the the book to uh, be part of uh, not so much an experimentation, but as, as as little things to to take steps along the way. Because there is never a quick fix to how anybody feels about anything. It has to be uh, a journey. And as much as that sounds a little bit patronising, it's, it's the truth. It is, you've got to start from somewhere and get to the end point. Yeah, the journey word is a bit of a cliche. I think I do use it. I think I reference it a couple of times. I'm trying to find a replacement for this word journey. So you, 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 want, you want the rail replacement bus service for mental health. Is that what you're saying? journey is just used so much it's banded about and, and everybody from X Factor contestants <laughs> to whatever use this word journey, what did I call it? I didn't call it a journey there's a, there's a, there's a, one of the blogs where I talk about going down the rabbit hole I wasn't on a journey because I was being thrown around so it weren't a journey, it was like a I, I forgot what word to use. Anyway, there's a whole bit around that, that how I don't really like this word journey, although I do use it a couple of times. Yeah. And so, yeah, it has to be done sometimes, doesn't it? Because it, it's, it's a useful metaphor. But uh, that said, um, it's like this, this is bringing into one place and in uh, an easy-to-digest form, uh, some of those elements of the blogs and, and a further expansion of, of what you felt at the time. Uh, and what was it like sort of looking back at those blogs and then writing around them because uh, in, in many ways you're a, a different person to who you were at the time. It's certainly a less, well, less, less troubles on, on your mind. So what was it like to, to see 
your innermost thoughts as an observer rather than the person going through them at the time? Yeah, I think there was the one that Christmas that I'd written that was quite a heavy one. It's like, today's a good day because... And I, I went back to that and thought, oh my God, my life was miserable. It really was bad. How, how the hell have I got from there to now? I think I've got better boundaries and coping mechanisms. Um, there's a lot of people that are no longer in my life that I've cut out. Uh, I, I just think... Yeah, I guess kind of evolved. Mm -hmm. and, um, it's... and it, yeah, it's a bit sad reading back through stuff and think, God, was I really that miserable? Um, yeah, but I, they, they still get banded out on various uh, platforms, uh, social media platforms. If I think there's a, a cause that, that that requires it, so I'll mm -hmm. you know LinkedIn will see one of my blogs from last year come <laughs> up, or, and I'm still writing now. Well, yeah, but, and, but it is having that written word, which allows, again, you to see the, uh, the different points on this, this trip through uh, your life. And if it, if it wasn't for being able to look back and say, that, that was a bad day, actually, it doesn't, it helps, doesn't help you realise how good a day today is, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, I, and, and appreciating some of the smaller things I didn't before. You know, I, I, everything had to be grand in my life, and now it's like... Do you know what? Just sit, just sit in the living room with a cup of tea and watch it looking out the window at the birds. It's quite nice. <laughs> it's uh, savouring those moments, enjoying uh, everything that, uh, that life does offer and looking for the good in it, but not having to search, just seeing it with fresh eyes. Yeah, and I think that you, you've hit the nail on the head look, looking to search. And when I was going into the hobby, I was just so desperate just to do something, just to get out of this mindset. But now I don't do that. I'm a bit more relaxed about life and a bit more chilled um, ar around things. So I'm not going searching. And if I if I decide I don't, I went to a writers club, but it just was boring. It bored me. The people were just boring. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 it's, it's realizing it's not you. It's them sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> they were just introverts, and they do. I even though I'm a writer, I've written three books now, so um, I. I still don't feel like a writer because mm -hmm. the people who I meet who are are very introverted and are quite happy to sit at a laptop. I have to go and sit in a bar with or sit in a cafe with my laptop because I need the noise. <laughs> it's, it, but it's, it's, it's a different way in which everybody's mind works and that comes through the writing as well. And through the writing that you've done here, hopefully uh, this is going to uh, spur people on to, uh, to, to maybe think about and make a change to, to where they are. Whereas you, know, you were guided towards journaling and sharing your experiences inter you know, internally that way, sharing them then externally and seeing that help others again must be another great step for you to, to know that you can assist somewhere. There was probably gaps when you were being helped. Loads, yeah. I mean, I'm working, uh, without going into too much detail, I'm working with a couple of um, charities at the moment around domestic abuse as well. Uh, and I'm helping those people just by having a voice one of the things that when you've a lot of mental health things going on people around you get sick of hearing it. they get sick of listening to it and just to be able to have that person that kind of just sits there and lets you just listen so i'm doing a lot of that as well in my spare time helping out on charities just having someone to go today's a bad day it's awful and letting them repeat people become very repetitive on their mental health they talk about things over and over and over again and much as family and friends are lovely, they get sick of hearing it. So uh, being able to support and understand 
um, with strangers as well. So that's kind of how I'm moving that that piece on. I'm I'm, I'm doing a bit more voluntary work. Mm -hmm. Well, the book itself uh, will be published during September. Uh, Elise K is the name that we're looking for. Where do we go to find that when it is out there and your other two volumes as well? Yeah, it'll be on Amazon Kindle um, and just follow me on my Elise K Facebook page um, and there will be updates. I am doing a pre-launch on the 13th of September on Zoom uh, and the details of that Zoom call so you can grab a drink, cup of tea, whatever you want and, and, and I'll read extracts from the book um, and hopefully it will be ready by the end of September on Amazon Kindle. Yeah, and you'll be able to sort of share a bit of the behind the scenes further than we've talked about now because you'll be yeah, talking about specific passages and then you can give a feel for, for how that you know, that you've talked about evolving, how that feeling has evolved now. It may still be there, but actually it's your interpretation of it possibly that's changed. Well, yeah. It looks like it's going to be a useful piece of work and uh, hopefully good for you having written it as well. Elise Kay, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Okay. Tom Webb from Snapdance Films has their latest production, The Easy Bit, which looks at the world of fertility. He joins me now to tell me more. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you doing? You all right? I'm good. I trust everything's going well in your world. Yes, yeah, very good, thanks. So first of all, I mean, how did you come to produce this documentary? Where has the uh, the, the story uh, you're telling here come from? Uh, so I, uh, my wife and I went through uh, sort of 10 to 12 years of fertility treatment trying to have a child, and um, it was something that... Uh, uh, it affected me very, very deeply. And, um, I, I you know, I found that was a, a huge lack of support for guys going through it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I felt that I needed to do something, uh, to try and rectify that. So, uh, I decided to make a film about what it's like for the, uh, men to go through fertility treatment, uh, and talk about how, uh, hard it is emotionally, um, to, to go through that process. Um, so that's what the, what the film is. That's what the documentary is. Because I mean, when it comes down to uh, the, the the pressure put on people in relationships, when it comes to, to to conception, the pressure can be part of the difficult bit. And and as much as there be many a joke about the practicing being the fun part, actually, when it mm. comes down to it, it's sometimes the the, the feeling of failure in in some ways and not being able to provide what you and your partner need might well be. Uh, a, adding to the, the the problems that you're actually getting yeah yeah absolutely and it, and it's you know it's it's one of those things i think um you know there's a lot a lot of guys feel pressure from society to be kind of like these macho masculine guys that you know and and, and fertility treatment can kind of really uh sort of attack that and and mm. and make you feel uh or make some people feel very emasculated and and and, and it, it's a, just a very um i don't know it's a very difficult process to go through and i think it's one of those things that you just need to need to start talking about normalizing and and getting guys to to, to, to talk and to uh just open up about um you know men, mental health in general but also things like infertility so when it came down to it, turning what for you was a life experience into a uh, into a documentary had you met people along the way who also wanted to, to share their story to allow others to, to appreciate the, the issues involved here? Well, I, uh, I've, when I was going through it, I found there was a distinct lack of 
a male voice basically there, there wasn't very much i think i managed to find like one maybe one book that was written by a guy and um it yeah it was a real struggle to you know and and in fact we'd almost sort of gone through most of the stuff we'd gone through mm-hmm. um and uh it was very difficult by the time i came to make the documentary it was like well how am i going to find these men like where, where do i look for them um and by sheer coincidence um a, f- a friend of mine kelly de silva who who runs uh the dovecote organization which is an organization for childless women not by choice um happened to hear about a campaign that the fertility network uk were doing and they wanted someone to make some videos for them so i sort of volunteered to, to help make the videos mm-hmm. and every time a guy came to the studio where we were filming i'd say oh are you would you be interested in talking in a documentary and and you know these were like four four or five minute videos we were making for fertility network uk and i said i want to make a feature length documentary just about what it's like for men to go through would you be interested in telling your story and opening up and uh, most of them said yes and i think four out of the six guys in the film came from that that project Mm -hmm. um and once i had those four um i was able to find the other two via them um and uh yeah there's a there's a facebook group that was set up by one of the guys in 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 the film uh called men's fertility support and um i sort of put a call out in there for for guys who 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 might want to take part Uh, and we found one guy that way and yeah then once i had those six it was kind of i i had a a really nice cross-section of stories of of uh, in terms of, you know, whether it was male factor, female factor, unexplained fertility or combined fertility issues. Um, and it, it, I managed to cover off quite kind of a lot of uh, information with those, with those six guys. Um, and that's kind of where, where it all kind of started to come together, really. Yeah. And through doing this, obviously, it, it's going to help people uh, approach. And whether it's um, not something that affects them as a couple or, or whether it is something which, is, which has been troubling your relationship because it not only has an impact on, you talked about masculinity there, if it's the male side of things, the, 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 the femininity of a, a woman could be, you know, she might call into question if she's not able to conceive. Um, but it, it's, it's not, it's got to be taken away from that. It's, it's a factor which, which is, you know, it's got to be outside of your relationship and then something that you work on together. And through telling these people's stories, actually, you give people a, a chance to to have an understanding of that and an appreciation for how their partner feels in each case. Yeah, one of the, I mean, when my wife and I were going through it, we we decided to write a blog about our, our experiences, which was our way of kind of communicating to the outside world what was going on so that we didn't have to have lots and lots of awkward conversations. And uh, I think that definitely helped us communicate uh, to each other. Um, but also I think that, there, there, there was something that really struck me which was one of the very seeds of the idea that I should make a film was the fact that a lot of the comments we got on those blogs were from women saying I had no idea my husband might be feeling this way mm-hmm. um, and and I think that was you know when, when you're going through fertility treatment you you're very as the guy you're you, you you're put into the support role so um you know, everyone tells you, oh, look, look after your wife, you know, look after your partner. And, and you know, you, you kind of get given the role of, of trying to 
be the rock for for your wife as she goes through all these horrific medical procedures um but nobody's there to to be that rock for you because it's very difficult to to turn to your wife when when you know there's there's lots of hormones involved and you know she's going through procedure after procedure you don't want to add to her stress mm-hmm. um so finding that support is very very important and and it, it can be very detrimental to to a relationship um and and you know even recently um i had a comment on social media from a from a guy who said sat down with my wife this evening to watch the easy bit and it was amazing because it started a conversation and and i think that was was really really you know powerful yeah and and, and talking about these things and understanding could be a, a a big grounding part of it knowing that others have been through it before and seeing how they've reacted to it sometimes to, to allow you to react in the same way also you react differently i mean it, it it's it's something that's that's there as a uh, as, as a point of reference so when when do you feel this would be right for, for somebody to watch i mean it's not just aimed at people who are having issues around conceiving this is uh, a, a documentary which shows true life and and will be worth uh watching just for the human interest side of it yeah that's a, that's a a really good question because um you know i think it's one of those things that i primarily made it so that guys going through the through the process wouldn't feel so alone um and and would realize that there are people out there that, that can that can understand what they're going through and there are people they can find to talk to um but also i know that um when, when you're a couple going through it at the beginning of that process, you're very keen to find all the information and find all of the, you know, like kind of, you know, do as much research as you can. Cause that, you know, before you start any treatment, you're kind of full of hope that everything's going to work and you're, you're quite kind of almost excited about getting into the process. Um, and I, and, and I, and I know that um, one lady was really excited about showing the film to her husband and he found it just it just wasn't the right time for him to watch it he didn't really engage in, in it as much and mm. um i think that's perfectly valid because i i know personally there were some times when i was in that situation where i was just like, i didn't want to know anything else. i just wanted to I, I didn't want to see other people's things i wanted to concentrate on myself for a bit so there's a very fine line and i would say if people watch the film who are going through it you you know there will be a right time to watch it and mm-hmm. and you might watch it and think oh no this wasn't wasn't what i wanted right now you might find in a couple of months time that actually now's the right time to watch it so and and then on, on top of that there are friends and family who haven't been through it but have have people that are and and just want to understand it a bit deeper so if if you're a guy that is going through it and you've got parents or brothers and sisters who don't quite get it you can point them in the direction of the film and be like this is this is how it is Mm -hmm. um you know so so where can we find a copy of the uh, the film to, to watch well, it's currently available to rent on uh, Prime Video uh, uh, on Amazon. So, um, yeah, it's 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 down there at bargain bargain price of about four pounds fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you can't get hold of it through Amazon, then you can also rent it from Vimeo on demand. So, uh, Vimeo or Amazon Prime, we're looking for the easy bit. Tom Webb, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Cheers. <laughs>
That's a lot for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. Back with episode 585 next week. I'll see you then. Ta-ra for now. Goodbye from the mill bar. 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 Yeah. Goodbye from the mill bar. Yeah.